What's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast presented to you by Texas Pete. I am Counter O'Kara. Will, week eight is in the books. You didn't have to sweat out Army LSU. So congrats to you. How are we feeling? Great. Not a lot of respect to the troops shown by Jaden Daniels. You know, almost almost the Kaepernick vibe from Jaden Daniels. Just first half, ended it very quickly. That one pass he had on a rope to um, BTJ was just phenomenal. So I got to have a great day. Got to hang out with our guy, Perry. Just got to watch Tennessee implode. So it was a very funny day for your boy. There was nothing quite as disrespectful as Garrett Nussmeyer stepping in in the start of the second half and just immediately four pass attempts. That was if, if he had handed the ball off, that would have upset me. Um, but a reminder, uh, Garrett Nussmeyer still very much likes to throw the football and LSU not in jeopardy against a team like Army. We're not going to talk LSU. That was the last LSU discussion until we at least get to the Bama part of this. The SEC West Championship of sorts. I'm not discounting you, Ole Miss. Not discounting you. But that is theoretically on the table after Bama is able to get by Tennessee. We're going to talk about all four of those SEC versus SEC games this weekend. Let's actually start right there, of course, because you mentioned it uh, for a bit there. Tennessee fans were feeling like, oh, my God, what is going to happen? And instead, we are reminded that going into Tuscaloosa and beating a Nick Saban coach team, still really difficult, still hard, still not easy to do. Bama had to do something that we had not seen since second and 26. Think about that. That is overcome a multi-score halftime deficit. They have faced multi-score halftime deficits. They did not win those games. 2021 at Texas A&M, that was a loss. 2019, home against LSU, we know how that played out. Tennessee had the best first half at Bryant-Denny Stadium. Since 2019, LSU. Mm-hmm. That is what happened, Calder. The second half. <laughs> then the second half happened. Uh, not going to lie. They had us in the first half. Um, they, they had us in the first half. Not going to lie. We were feeling a little bit of uh, chaotic copium. And then Tennessee Volunteers happened. But there is, there is, uh, there's, there are a lot of takeaways from this game. There, there very much are. And oh, yeah. I, I, look, I want to give Tennessee credit for showing up the way that it did. And as much as I would love to not compare to anything to 2019 LSU after I had to step in middle of the week and say, hey, everyone, let's not put Washington in that category because Washington literally had to come back to try and win a football game against Oregon. And you know what? 2019 LSU literally never did that entire season in which they just had top 10 opponents galore was have an opportunity where the opposing team had the football and they had a chance to tie or take the lead in the fourth quarter. I'm just Mm -hmm. saying. 27 unanswered points for Alabama in the second <laughs> half. In all the second half. All. all the second half. It was the type of domination in all three phases that um, I, we haven't seen quite like that. That was the easily the best half of football that Alabama has played. So as much as everybody's going to want to dog on Tennessee for blowing the lead and all those different things, like everything Bama did in the second half worked. Even Will Reichert. Booming a 50-yard field goal. By the way, that guy just can't miss. Um, yep. They dominated. They totally dominated. Let me let me start with this. If you think just because that second half happened and it was 27 unanswered, it's as impressive as that was, if you think that means that Bama has turned the corner, you haven't been paying attention. That, I think, even a, even a Bama fan who is 
optimistic that a path to a national championship still exists. I think even they can look at this objectively somewhat, at least I hope, and say, hmm, probably not a turn-the-corner type half. The, the, the rest of the body of work that we've seen from Alabama in the previous, what is it, let me do some quick math. This was their eighth game of the season. They had played seven games coming in, 14 halves. The previous 15 halves of football, did not tell us that this was the team that Alabama was. That was really impressive math to just do on the spot, by the way. I'd like yeah. to a little bit of credit for that. Um, yeah. 60-minute games are just – that's not their forte. That's not, that's not what they do. It's, it's not. They brought up on the CBS broadcast that it was the fourth time that Bama trailed at half this season, which is already the most of any Saban-era team. Will, it's October 22nd. Yep. That's – we're not into the postseason yet. We're not to the LSU game yet. We're not to an SEC championship yet. Like, that is telling, in my opinion. That is what this team does. And I know, I know, I know, I know. I sound like a broken record. But this perspective is worth remembering, even in a game like this, in which we think, holy crap, that was scary. Look what Bama just did. Since the start of 2021, we're going back to when Bryce Young takes over. Mm -hmm. We're now at 16 of a possible 21 games in SEC play that were one-score games in the fourth quarter. It's four of five this year with the lone non-one-score game in the fourth quarter against SEC competition being the Mississippi State game. And we know Alabama just dominates Mississippi State every single year anyway, so I don't really even think that we should count that. Yep. Alabama is comfortable playing in tight games because that's all these guys know at this point. That's it. Was the, like uh, the Bane quote, you just you really adopted the darkness. I was born in the darkness. <laughs> they get the four, uh, uh, one score game in the fourth quarter. It's like, this is a big game, guys. This is going either way. And Alabama's like, no, it can't. No, <laughs> this will only go one way. <laughs> Think about how different that mindset is, though, for this group of guys. The some of the upperclassmen that have been there for a little bit, even Milrose. You know, this is his third year there, and compare that to like what those 2012 Bama players probably thought. About oh, yeah, they were shooting the bench in the fourth quarter. They didn't know what playing in the fourth quarter was like. Yeah, they're like, wait a minute. Football is 60 minutes? What, 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 are, what are you talking about? About Even 33 in me, brother. I'm prepared for the draft at this point. <laughs> more of a 25 to 30 snap type of guy. I don't know about yeah, you guys. Come on now. This team has had to dig deep. And they've done so successfully. For, I mean, think about that. In those 21 games, Bama's 18-3 and three in SEC play over that stretch. That oh, is, yeah. Uh, that That is not a small feat. It's really not. And it's kind of scary that they're this good playing in these spots now. Because once upon a time, there was this public panic whenever Bama found itself in a dogfight. It was, hey, call your buddies, text your buddies. Bama's, Bama's trailing in half. Things are happening. Turn on CBS. Like, everybody knows that. It, it, even, you know, the Bama fans know that reality very, very well. And while not that USF's was, doing that. Yeah. <laughs> Look. <laughs> I mean, if, if you're if you're doing that in a game against USF, we're we're talking about a, a different a different type of panic. I don't think that's hey, get to your TV right now. It's oh my God, what is this life? What what in the world are we are we doing? What even is college football at this point in the season? I think that there is a feeling publicly that's there, and I don't necessarily think it's fair to say that that automatically translates to players. But we are talking about eighteen to twenty two year old kids who were used to dominating, at least that's what the Bama way of old felt like. And this group seems to have a much better sense of urgency ever since that USF game, ever since then. If you kind of look at the way that this has played out, man, 
Halftime deficits against Ole Miss. Halftime deficit on the road in front of 106,000 people at College Station. Halftime deficit to your big rival, Tennessee, after the way that last year played out. And that didn't matter. That didn't matter. And, you know, it's it's kind of amazing. Like, I, I don't think that you can say Alabama's just a second-half team because, let's not forget, seven days before what they did against Tennessee, they had the Arkansas game wherein – they nearly let a lifeless team come back from 24 to 6 late a in the prolific third. offense uh, sure uh, an offense lighting up the scoreboard since that matchup this is not going to be the favorite pod for arkansas fans i'll just tell you that right now we got some harsh things to say but yeah they they just find a way in these tense moments to be able to weather the storm and that's a very cliche thing, but I thought coming out and hitting Isaiah Bond on that long touchdown right after the break was huge. It was like 41 seconds into the second half. If Milrow misses that throw, I think it's an entirely different third quarter. I like to me when you're playing from a two score deficit, that that panic and that oh my god, my first read isn't there. The heart rate gets up. Like I, I just think that changed the entire complexion of how that third quarter played out. And it kind of set the stage for what Bama wanted to do. And instead of feeling like, oh, we got to overcome this two-score deficit, Bama gets to kind of run its offense. I thought it was a really nice second half for Tommy Reese. And defensively, that felt like a switch was flipped in a lot of ways. I mean, those dudes were playing with their hair on fire in the second half. Chris Braswell was all over the place. They allowed that Tennessee rushing attack, the best in the SEC. I think they were, what, sixth or seventh in the country coming in. 33 rushing yards in the second half. And Joe Milton, he could not do much of anything in the second half after it looked like he could do whatever in the world he wanted in the first half. I was, I was like, wait a minute. That, that first half, I'm thinking to myself, Connor, you idiot. You wrote off Joe Milton, and he is going to dunk in your face. You are so stupid. This is why we don't write off quarterbacks, even when they're in year six and they've lost their starting job twice and they're underwhelming in their third attempt to have a starting job. This is why we don't write off quarterbacks. And that throw that he made, I was a little bit more in love with this that throw that he had to squirrel white the first touchdown of the day than you were. Oh, it was a sick play. I just think it was a little bit ahead of the guy, but he made the play he needed to make. It was. I'm not going to take that away from Bazooka Joe. It was a missile. Yeah, look, he had – because he had the, the mismatch. He had Braswell in coverage on squirrel white, which – that that was shades of last year when when yeah. they're trying to cover Jalen Hyatt with with safeties and and pretending like that's that's going to be totally okay and he's just like oh yeah I'm every time I catch the ball it's just going to be a sixty yard touchdown um, mm-hmm. that's that's what that play felt like except Squirrel White on on Braswell where it looked like Milton kind of had to use the sideline to his advantage and not necessarily lead him into where he could have over the top help so I kind of get it from that. From that perspective, I loved what he did in the first half, the lowering the shoulder thing where all of a sudden Joe Milton has realized that he's built like a Greek god and he can run these dudes over. He started doing it against A&M. And uh, like, I, look, how this guy took six years of college to realize he's 6'5", Connor? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, literally, I was sitting there talking to Perry. I said, if he could do what, like one of three things, he would be a solid quarterback. Either he could consistently hit the deep throws. Either he could like have touch on the middle throws or he could be mobile. I was like, hey, he's not going to do that. And he just runs the dude over. And I'm like, oh, oh my God. <laughs> and he, he will stand over you and let yes. you know that he, that he ran you over. And, you know, a, a couple, or I guess it was, yeah, the, the game last week against AM, he did that. And then I think it was 
very soon after where he threw a pick and Aaron, Aaron Murray pointed out like maybe a little bit too hype coming off of that. You kind of got to settle yourself down in those moments. Cause he had that bad pick in, in the end zone there. And, and on the broadcast this time, of course we play the results and we're like, it almost felt as if that got him going. And maybe, mm-hmm. maybe it did to a certain extent, got him within the flow of the game, but that Josh Heupel script, man, mm-hmm. it was humming. It was humming. Vince Lombardi for those four, fifth, first 15 plays, brother. You might as well have a field of defense when Josh Heupel's got a script going. <laughs> it's incredible to watch when, when they are that comfortable. And, and it just seems like, man, how in the world are you going to get in front of this team? Wh- who's mm-hmm. going to stop the bleeding? And for even longer than just the first quarter, I thought Tennessee did a really, really good job of that. Missed opportunity there to, when they could have made it a three-score game. I think it was the, the pass to Jacob Warren in the end zone. That was like mm-hmm. just out of reach. If Milton had put it on him a little bit better, it would have been a tough play to make. But it was one of those where if you're going to win a game like that, you kind of got to hit on those opportunities. and You got to do the 2012 A&M thing at Bama where you get up three scores early and you punch them in the mouth in a way that they're not – you can talk about comeback wins all we want, but coming back from a three-score deficit like that is is a different ball game. It changes – what you want to do in the complexion of, of, you know, your entire game plan. So that I thought there were some missed opportunities there as great as it was, but man, I, I just, the, the night and day with Milton to see yep. what he was in the first half where he's connecting, he's hitting the Cobra Kai celebration, a little Bama troll and he's feeling yep. good. And then the second half happened and yep. everybody is like, Oh yeah, this is, uh, this is what we signed up for. This is, this is Joe Milton. If you take away the ground game, which easier said than done against that Tennessee rushing attack, uh, I don't really know that you want Joe Milton in a one-dimensional attack. You just don't. Uh, some of the pocket presence stuff is just not necessarily there, and I realize the scoop and score was the dagger in this game. But I, And I'm not saying Joe Milton's the reason they lost that game. Like They got beaten all three phases in the second half. Oh, was, no. Tr- they were bad at everything. Yeah, blaming yourself one so human other than maybe Josh Heupel. What was – okay. Talk to me like, or explain this to me like I'm five. What was that return rule? I still don't know, Will. I still don't know. <laughs> to be honest with you, man. And, I'm right there. <laughs> okay, so for for those who, who didn't see this, there was a kickoff that went to Tennessee. And you on a kick return, you have two guys that are back, one on each side, right? So the guy on the far side appeared to do a fair catch signal, which is he sticks yes. his arms out. Now, what the officials ruled was that when the other player for Tennessee caught that ball at the four-yard line, he was down there, and the play Mm -hmm. was dead. If the player who had caught the ball had signaled for the fair catch, I think it would have been given to them at the 25. At least that's what I thought. That's what I had thought. Now, I could be wrong about that. There could be something that comments and says, Connor, that's actually not what it was. I did not think they did a good enough job explaining that on the broadcast. Why did they bring... Why they didn't bring in Gene Steratore to like t- give us a full rundown of what literally the that's world what we just need happened. him for. Not targeting, not PI. We know what those are. What is this? This is what we need yeah. Gene Steratore for. By the way, there was there was a moment in that game where they brought in Gene Steratore to to talk about something official related on a spot where it was like whether or not Joe Milton had picked up the first down. And you could tell that he was just buying time and he yeah. didn't see whether or not Milton had picked up the first down and he's like, what a great defensive play. <laughs> like, that, that's not what we're bringing Gene on to talk about on right. this broadcast. Let's just let, 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 let that be known. That's not part of his contract. But I thought that was a wild play because being on your own 25, as opposed to being on your own four with how confident Bama was in the second half, 
I thought that was a monumental game. And I'm not sure if this comment from Josh Heupel after the fact was directly related to that because he was going ballistic too on the sideline. It wasn't like he was just sitting there pretending like nothing had happened, but yep. he was asked because Bama only had one penalty yard for one penalty for five yards in this game. Mm-hmm. That won't, mm-hmm. that, that is not lost on Tennessee fans. Ironic that it happened a year after Bama fans were very, very upset with the amount of penalties called on them in Neyland. So some would say it's water finding its level, whatever you want to say. Josh Heupel was asked about that and if he thought it was basically if the game was called fairly. And uh, because Tennessee had eight penalties, 55 yards. Not totally egregious, but, you know, clearly one team was getting penalized more than the other. And his silence in the postgame presser when when he was asked that question lasted about 10 seconds. It's long. If you haven't seen the clip, you should go look it up. My friends over at the next round had that. And he then says, breaking his silence, next question. Was that silence long enough? Trying not to get fined. I'm sure so I won't get fined. Sure so I won't get fined. Yep. Might still get fined. It's the SEC. They'll find a way to find him. Of course they will. I, I just, I, I'm going to need a, a more in-depth breakdown. And there are smarter people than me in this business. But for the life of me, I, I can't give you the explanation that, that probably Tennessee fans covet from that. Okay, maybe somebody else can, but it was a weird instance. And that just kind of lets you know, it felt like everything was working against Tennessee in that second half. Yes. And also that was right after. So like, I, I think you're right on the money here, which is okay. They get down there, score the ridiculous touchdown and start the game, but then it's two field goals. You know, the pass to Warren, I mean, that dude's massive. Like as much as I want to credit Bazooka Joe for like what he had done. I feel like he could have just put that. I mean, that guy's like, what, like 6'5", six, 6'6". Six, six. Little touch like, on that was, pass would have been It was cool. just so – like, when you watch it in slow-mo, it looked like he jumped a little bit wrong, but it's like he shouldn't have even really had to jump to get to that ball. So it's like they should have had minimum two touchdowns, assuming they got the first one. And then, you know, you get to the first and goal. Like, they just they, – they couldn't punch it in two times in a row. And then Milrow, exactly what you said, comes straight down, gets the Milrow special, which is just like, boom, money, how do you like me now? Like, I've forgotten the whole first half. And then immediately, like, one play after is that busted return, and you're like, oh, no. Alabama's feeling it. Tennessee's starting the turtle. And it's like, immediately, I feel, it felt like the game almost swung on that. Yeah, that game was – you you forgot very quickly that Bama was down 13 and a half. I mean, that that yep. is – He's talking about coming out of the locker room ready to kill. And I don't know that you can say, oh, well, Bama made this adjustment and that adjustment. And, oh, they, they were just – they were sleepwalking. I don't, I don't think any – we play the results with all of that stuff. It's probably a little bit of everything. Um, mm-hmm. But, man, they just – all of a sudden, they just started dominating in the trenches in a way that we're, we're not really used to seeing. And, look, Milrow in that game, we said the defining moments of that game – we're going to be, what does Milrow do when he's going to get sacked? Because this Tennessee front is going to get to him. And he had the one fumble. Mm-hmm. He had the one interception that he threw what, on a play that he wasn't pressured, but it was an unbelievable tip back in the end zone trying to hit Burton. And he like tipped it to his own guy. I mean, I don't even think yep. he's not even trying to do that. And that, that worked out very, very well for Tennessee. That was one of those plays where I started to wonder if this was just going to be Tennessee's day. Right. Um, but yeah, the Jermaine Burton experience continues to be a roller coaster kicking a dude after scoring a touchdown because that's what John Starks does. So why wouldn't Jermaine Burton do the same exact yeah. thing? Um, but the the entire mindset that I thought the Bama offense had in the second half, getting Jason McClellan going, Milrow kind of settling into the game, feeling comfortable, not rushing throws. He didn't take five sacks and have these drive-killing plays. 
I thought he played really, really well. And he is now developing a habit of, hey, when the, when the chips are stacked against him, he's not going to be the guy that's going to panic. And look, I don't know that you want Joe Milton leading a comeback for you. I, th- I think Jalen Milrow has answered that question in a much more significant way based on how many mm-hmm. times he's had to do it. And instead, Tennessee is a team that um, has not put together a 60-minute game on the road. They've had two road games this year. If you combine their first half at Bama and their second half at Florida, wherein I thought they actually played really well and did a lot of things effectively, but Florida got off to that early lead, so they didn't really have a, as much of a chance to climb back in. If you combine those two things, Tennessee's probably a top-10 team. I mean, like, if things were different, they would be different. It's just not the way it works. Yep. It's just not. Yeah. I Look, um, two losses, both on the road. It confirms some of the preseason skepticism that we've had about Tennessee, just not being that offensive juggernaut that can that can bail you out in some of those key moments. They still have road games at Kentucky and at Mizzou. Plus, obviously, you've got the home game against Georgia. I think it's an 8-4 team. Yeah. I, I, sticking with my, my preseason call on that one, like it's more like an 8-4 and four, uh, type team. And starting to feel a little bit bad for – for that defensive line that they're, I don't know, kind of at the mercy of, I shouldn't say that. You know what? Let me take that back. I love what that defensive line does. And I think that that is still the strength of that team. And I'll, I'll continue to bang the drum for James Pierce, who forced that mm-hmm. bumble on Jalen Milrow. That guy is just so awesome. And when he gets going, man, like they, it just changes what they're capable of doing. But um, yeah, I think Tennessee is just, look, hang around and eight and four and being up like that at halftime against Bama, I guess is a whole lot better than what you were talking about pre hypo And that's maybe the positive you take away from this. It's three consecutive games against Saban in which it's been a one score game in the fourth quarter. Right. Yep. So once upon a time that used to be the biggest victory in the world for Tennessee against Bama it was just right. a close game in the fourth quarter. That's all we could ever ask for. They drip out um, a little black and miles. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Totally. How about, how about afterwards, the the CBS interview with, with Jenny Dell, wherein she points out how Saban's not much of a cigar guy. And then Saban says, oh, well, you know, I'll, I'll what did he say? Like, I'll, I'll suck on one. I won't light it. And it, Milrow just dies laughing. Like Milrow is just cackling. And I butchered the quote of that, of what, what exactly he says. Or I'll chew on one for a while. He didn't say I'll suck on one. That would be a little bit little bit aggressive. Uh, but he's like, I'll chew on one for a while. And then Milrow just like loses it, laughing uncontrollably at Saban. I don't know why the sideline reporter gives the winning coach of this game the victory cigar. But that tradition is now a tradition within the tradition. Happened mm-hmm. last year too. I remember with Heupel and with with Jenny Dell giving him the cigar, and I'm like, okay, so Jenny Dell is just the, the the gatekeeper for for cigars. I don't know. We'll get her on the pod one time. We'll we'll ask her about that. About like, hey, so like, why why are you the person that is in charge of <laughs> of handing out the victory cigar? Like, they've got so many people on their sideline right. in their favor. Literally, everybody in the entire stadium has a cigar, <laughs> and and she's the one that's tasked with. Hey, it's like. The best man with the engagement ring or something. Like, yeah. What? And look, and whoever picks the cigar too, that's a real pressure cooker. Because with Nick Saban, like at this point, he's probably even developed a taste for cigars because he's won so many of these games. So you got to make sure and get a nice cigar. You can't just give him like a Walmart brand, whatever. It's like, come on. That's that's the cigar. It's the first one. There's no way he knows the difference. 
There's no yeah, way. So. <laughs> Zero chance whatsoever. I think even people that smoke a cigar once a year don't really know the difference. I, mm. psh, no way. Uh-uh. There's no chance. But yeah, that was uh, that was a, a game in which Bama reminded the world, hey, you said we're going to be 9-3 and three this year. We're still pretty darn good. We're still in the driver's seat in the SEC West. Speaking of that, LSU Bama. Hold on, really quick, really quick. Before we get to that, let me, let me say something. Um, this one overall just average disaster class by Josh Heupel. Like I could just laugh at it all day. Three phases, like you said. One guy I feel like we haven't talked enough about. Like we've talked so much about Milrow and Burton. Is it fair to say like the best player on this offense is Jason McClellan? All bang the drum team member. Yep. I would take him over anybody in this offense. Yeah. I, that includes Jermaine Burton, obviously. I'm not of course, yeah. Burton, not a Burton guy. Um <laughs> I thought he was great. You're right. That's a good point. I should have I should have shouted him out. He is never he is going to be forgotten in when we look back on this decade of dominance and we talk about all the great Alabama running backs. He is not going to be a guy that is ever at the forefront of the conversation, understandably so, given the guys who have come before him, maybe even given the guys who have come after him, uh TBD on Justice Haynes, if he ends up being that dude that Bama fans think he's gonna be. He's a great player. He is so physical between the tackles. He, despite having an offensive line that doesn't really seem like it gives him wide open holes through the A-gap, he is shifty enough to be able to make things work, and he's kind of exactly what this team needs. If this team had a guy that was just constantly looking for the home run play, which I love Jameer Gibbs. I love Jameer Gibbs. Sometimes he was guilty of that, I think. Mm -hmm. Jace McClellan, I think, is a little bit more geared to what this team needs to be able to say, hey, look, I don't need to try and turn this into 17, 18 yards, bounce it to the outside. I, I, I need four or five. I need to be able to get, give, give Jalen Milrow a better third down situation here. Um, and I think he just does that. I, I, yeah, I would say he's the probably the best offensive player, um, maybe even including Milrow. I still yeah. I mean, he's probably not as the wins above replacement for Milrow is different because we've seen Ty Simpson and Tyler Buckner. So that's, that's yeah, but that's just like kind of having trash behind you. Like, yeah, I, I was thinking about this just felt like another game where it's like you look at the games where Bama has like kind of needed to put it away as funny enough, starting with the USF game as I, but I'm serious. He low key took over that USF game and like made that like from a game that was very much in doubt to like taking it over. And it's when you see like down the stretch where, you know, they go from this Tennessee um, pass rush that you were t- just like, not not just the pass rush, but the front four was just electric all day. And it went from them getting pressure and kind of getting in Miller's face to McClellan. Like, it wasn't just the way that he was pushing forward for yards. It was the way that he was making the miss. It was like plays that schematically looked like Tennessee was going to get to him in the second half. He had just started to find a way to make a little shimmy turn a one-yard gain into a four- or five-yard gain. And I just kept watching him over and over and over again. I was like, what is Tennessee supposed to do right now? Because they started to bring a safety. They started to do all this stuff. And he was just like, every play was like, let me just keep this alive. Let me just keep this alive. And that turned into this suffocating game for Tennessee where they just couldn't get a stop. And I just want to, like, shout him out because it feels like, like I said, we've talked about Miller and Burton and, and like, a couple of guys like JC and the, the offense is like, those guys have struggled. I don't think McClellan's really struggled. I think that whenever they've needed him to do something, he's done it. And I think that he's been like the quiet hero of this team, despite everybody else kind of getting more praise. I agree. And it's it's not as if he has had this perfect situation with an Alabama mm-hmm. offensive line that's just dominating teams up front. And it's a little bit more interchangeable. Like, I, I love Tennessee's backs. 
they're more interchangeable because of how good that offensive line has been. I mean, right. That, that's what we're talking about here. And, and I realize in a game like this, wherein they actually struggle, it's, it's a kind of a different conversation, but you know, you're, you're looking up at, at these Tennessee running backs and you're like, man, these guys couldn't get anything going against that Bama front. And for a while, it looked like it was going to be that case with McClellan. And instead, what they do and why I give Tommy Reese credit, he ends up getting 27 carries in this one. That is, mm -hmm. it's, I feel like it's been a minute since we've seen a Bama back get that many carries in a game. I'd have to go back and, and look that up. I should have had that note uh, for this, but you're exactly right. He's a great player. He is, uh, he was not getting talked about enough probably in the preseason in part because of the Justice Haynes buzz and in part because everybody's wondering about this quarterback situation, but he is, uh, he is turning into what they hoped he would be. Um, any other thoughts on this one before we have a, like a way too early discussion about mm -hmm. um, the LSU Bama showdown in a couple of weeks? Please, let's do it. All right. Yeah, I figured you'd enjoy getting to this. This game um, is going to have a different feel than last year. That that much, I think we know just, I mean, the Alabama side, much different team, of course, but they are asking the question with uh, with our, our buddies, three amigos, Jordan, Cole, and Tom. And Jordan asked the question to Cole, hey, who in Bama is going to stop Brian Thomas and Malik Neighbors? Like, who's going to stop these guys? And Cole had a moment where he paused. And then, and then Jordan goes, exactly. The Kool-Aid McKinstry matchup that we could see in a game like this, I think you'd ideally like to have him on the outside against Brian Thomas. The problem is the way that they move around Malik Neighbors, the way that he's been able to get involved. I don't know how you defend LSU. That's what I'm trying to say. I don't know how you defend LSU at this point. This could be a game in which Bama really has to get some big-time performances in the passing game to be able to keep up. And I, I think that that is the way that you have to approach this. Obviously, you'd like to be able to shorten the game. You want to keep that LSU offense off the field. But, man, this if you're thinking this is going to be similar to last year with this LSU offense, I think that would be a, a massive, massive mistake they have been so unstoppable, and they're more than capable of coming in in Tuscaloosa, and we're looking up and we're like, oh, my God, LSU's up 28-7 to 7 at half in this game. Mm -hmm. Like, that that could theoretically happen. Where, where is your confidence level right now as an LSU fan, knowing that you got a bye week, knowing that you got a chance to get maybe a little bit healthier? Jaden kind of gets that rib taken care of, although he was never really sidelined with it. Where where are you at right zero, now? One series. No, um, you're you're right. And I said this, like, I like to be consistent with these things. I said after Mizzou came, LSU is gonna play Auburn, putrid offense, army, bad offense, bye week. And I was like, we are going to trick ourselves into thinking this defense is any good. It's not. Look at the guys who were making plays yesterday. Andre said <laughs> that dude is not making plays against Alabama. And so point being, like, I still think that, like, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say LSU's defense has turned the court. Suddenly Matt House has gotten out of base defense. Suddenly these DBs are not from, like, East, West Lafayette State. Like, they still have the team they have. They still have the people they have. I'm not sure this is a new team. This is the team that gave up 100 points in two weeks. It's not here. But I will say this offense is just continues to surprise me with how good they are. Um, and, like, I sent you some numbers about Logan Diggs, and we'll probably get that get to that in the preview pod. But I, I think LSU is the best rushing attack in the SEC, and it's not just, oh, it's one guy. It's the fact that you have to stop. I, I had, like, a tweet about it. It's like, well, you have <laughs> the leading yards receiver in America – who is neighbors, the leading touchdowns receiver in America, who is Brian Thomas Jr. You have guys who are third and, or sorry, fourth and fifth in the SEC in yards per carry. 
and uh, and, and Logan Dix is Logan Diggs is second in yards per game. Uh, and then also they are up first in explosive plays. So if they play their game, if they're not going to make mistakes, this is this is going to be a super duper fun game because when we've seen Milro uncork it, he has that same little bit of like, oh, Burton down there somewhere. And like, I think we're going to get a ton of those plays. And that's what I'm excited about is just like two quarterbacks that just know that they got to win the game. It's not like I don't see any playing safe. I see that LSU, every time they score, they put their defense out there. <laughs> and, and I think that they know, like, Jaden's going to know. And, like, like I think that Jalen Milrow knows that he has to keep up with Jaden Daniels. And Jaden Daniels knows he's got to bail out his terrible defense. I think the overrunner for this game could be high 60s. Yep. I think it will be. And I guess that is similar, a little bit similar to last year. But it's still, I think it's still just going to have a, a different feel to it just because of just because of this this confidence and when mm-hmm. what we have seen this LSU offense do and how unstoppable they've been, it's not just the passing game. Um, I'm not saying that it's going to turn into full-on 2022 Bama-Tennessee. Yeah. But would I rule that out? I mm, I don't think so. And if it does, advantage LSU. Talk about being comfortable within certain types of games. LSU is the team that that's comfortable being like, oh, wait, we're – we're, d- we're down on the road to, to Mizzou. We got our quarterback hurt. No big deal. We'll just like march down the field. We'll score two more touchdowns. It'll be fine. Right. Like, we, we don't really care. We assume our defense is going to allow these, these touchdowns. Now, if it turns into like this 21 to 14 game and the pressure packages are being dialed up by Kevin Steele, allegedly, and LSU is just on its heels and this offensive line is like, whoa, we haven't seen – Dudes like Chris Braswell and Dallas Turner that, that can get after us consistently. Um, then well, that obviously very, that it wasn't fun, but they saw it. <laughs> Jared first actually had a quiet, relatively quiet week one it, compared to mm-hmm. last year, what he did in this game. This game 2022, he was really getting after LSU. I think he only had the one sack, but it was obviously a high impact play. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to this one. As crazy as it feels like this year has been at times, this in many ways is going to be the SEC West Championship. And I realize Ole Miss, Ole Miss, this is how much we respect you. Will and I were looking up tiebreakers <laughs> before we came on. And if somebody smarter out there wants to explain the three-way tiebreaker, because obviously the head-to-head, it's 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 a, you know, you beat you, but you beat you. And so it, it, it kind of rules it out. If somebody smarter out there wants to put out a tweet, I will credit that tweet. Mm-hmm. I'll bring it up on air. I will explain it. Ole Miss obviously still has the Georgia game on the schedule, so could in theory have that second loss coming. But I do understand that there is a world in which LSU could beat Bama, and we're talking about a three-way tie, three teams that would be at 7-1 and one at the end of the regular season. I'll know the tiebreakers eventually, but for right now on a Sunday morning, they were really complicated. I'll say this too, yeah, like you said, like not to get into that, but funniest outcome for sure would be LSU beats Bama and Tuscaloosa, and then Ole Miss just boat races Georgia, which I don't think we think is going to happen, but it would be so funny because if they just beat Georgia, it's like, well, actually, I think that pretty much every tiebreaker is going to favor Ole Miss and they just scoot by LSU. That would be hilarious. But yeah, it's this is actually now kind of a light up in West race. <laughs> so we'll take it. Now that we assumed LSU was going to drop like a couple of games down the stretch. They just kind of didn't. So uh, yeah, it's, it's quietly, we've got three pretty good teams in the West now. We do very much uh, three, potentially going to be three top 10 teams in the SEC West when that first playoff poll comes out on Halloween, Tuesday, October 31st. South Carolina, Mizzou, 
Mizzou has a winning record in the year 2023. First time that's happened in a decade. It's clinched mm-hmm. seven and one. Your Missouri Tigers best eight game start in a decade. Five consecutive wins that Mizzou has against South Carolina. They had the chicken trolling afterwards. Shout out Moana. Great Disney movie. Some are saying one of the best ever. Mm-hmm. Zero. Zero South Carolina touchdowns, Will. Mm. That's not good. Pete Carmichael. Like he's back. Man. It's the Saints mm. offensive coordinator. I, I hate games like that where you're just watching field goals all day. I hate it. Don't like it. I, Spencer Adler was, was actually pretty good still, despite that. Uh, Blake Baker's defense was better. Not, not really a bold take there. Of course, South Carolina lost another starting offensive lineman, and Xavier Leggett goes down, upper body injury. Um, TBD on that. Just awful, awful blow for Spencer Rattler. Beamer seems pretty exasperated. If you kind of heard him talking about these injuries in the postgame, um, and I'm not saying Xavier Leggett's presence makes a difference in the results of that game. Obviously, Mizzou won that convincingly, but it just seems like Spencer Rattler cannot buy a break with his surroundings, even as he improves. Beamer on one foot um, also probably feels like he can't really buy a break. I think he made it out of the game with at least one healthy foot. I don't know. Can't mm-hmm. confirm that just yet. Um, didn't seem like the type of game in which he would injure his other foot and break his other foot. By the way, Gatorade cooler. That's what it was. Gatorade cooler. Mm-hmm. Wasn't, wasn't a brick okay. wall that he kicked. Wasn't. Um, I, I don't know. A player I on was the team. Would be- I was praying it would be a trash can so I could then say, why was he kicking his offensive line? Oh, that just, wow. You had that one in the holster. I was so ready. Jeez. He, would, he, wouldn't, have, he wouldn't have said that if it were a trash can. Gatorade mm-hmm. Cooler's like, okay, yeah. Who hasn't? Who among us, right? right? Um, Mizzou, on the other hand, just kind of feels like he could do no wrong at, at this point. Think about this. They fell behind 14 and nothing at Kentucky. Drink calls the fake punt. Says Luke Bauer. Get us going. Since then, they have allowed one touchdown while scoring 72 points. That's pretty good against a couple of teams that, look, coming into the year, Kentucky, South Carolina, probably the majority of people had Kentucky and South Carolina as a better team than Mizzou. And here, yep. South Carolina is sitting there at 2-5, and five, and Mizzou is at 7-1, and one, and in very, very different places. And... This is a team that is getting more and more confident. The better teams, even though this isn't a this isn't a win that we're going to talk about uh, postseason and say, "Wow, that's when we knew that Mizzou was was better than advertised." But when you are dominating teams in your division, and that's what it means to dominate is winning by several scores. Even though it got a little bit close there at one point, and it was a two score game. Still, this is what good teams do, and Mizzou is a good team. Luther Burden gets kind of banged up again in this one. He kind of fell awkwardly on his shoulder, and it didn't matter. He's still awesome. That catch that, that he had. Down. Oh, my God. <laughs> let, let the record show that, yes, Luther Burden, slot receiver, unbelievable with yards after catch. That is what he does best. But, my God, can this guy go up and make a play? That was ridiculous. One of the best catches I've seen all year. To make that play in double coverage, to have – the concentration to somehow come down with it. I mean, when they, and that was that was a sign, in my opinion, that Kirby Moore said, "Okay, we can get whatever we want against this defense. I don't really care. I'm gonna tell Brady Cook, yeah, their secondary is they're they're dead last in the country against the pass. I don't care if Luther Burden's in double coverage. Throw him the football. 
Let him, let him, Imagine let him this game play. plan, which I suggested in the second half against LSU. Luther Burton could catch the ball over anyone. Just put it around him generally. James Franklin, just put it around him generally. He'll catch it. <laughs> well, James Franklin is not a believer in deep passes, touchdowns, points. Offense, uh, happiness, puppies. Yeah, just why, why would you need that? So, some are pointing out that the only offensive coordinator that James Franklin's ever had who beat Ohio State was a certain Joe Moorhead. Uh, we don't need to look at the total yards from that game, but I'm just saying, if I were to bring up an important point, that's what I would say. Lock of the week hits, five and three, no big deal. Mizzou in this game, though, was saying, our better is better than your better, and we don't really care. They actually didn't even throw the ball that well in this one. It's kind of the second consecutive game in which Brady Cook didn't cook at the level that he was hoping to, but the important thing with him season high in rushing yards, I think he finished with 64 rushing yards in this one. He had 70 rushing yards on the season because obviously the mobility has been limited. And when you're in college football and we're still dealing with quarterbacks getting dinged for rushing yards because of sacks, something I know you're very passionate about. Yep. It's, it's, I, well, the backstory there is I texted you about like Colorado's rushing totals because one of my buddies was like, Colorado's the worst running team in like college football. And I looked at it, it's just Shadur Sanders taking sacks. He has 73 rushing attempts because of all the sacks. And it's like, actually, they're pretty good running the ball. You just got to take these sacks out. Imagine if they did that anyway. Yeah, you always got to go to the, the sack-adjusted rushing yard, something that I, that I love to be able to do. Like in this game, for example, I'll pull it up right now. Mizzou, 220 sack-adjusted rushing yards. Cody Schrader. 159 rushing yards and a couple of scores in this one. They pretty much fed him. They said, you know mm -hmm. what? I know that this South Carolina secondary is basura, but we think that's the area that we can really that we can really expose. And they did. And Mizzou's offensive line has played really, really well. And this game, it felt so lopsided. It, it really did. I mean, I, I think that there is a, a possibility that we're going to go into that Georgia game with Mizzou coming off of the bye here, right? Where Mizzou will be seven and one going into that Georgia game. And we're going to say, huh, I think Luther Burden is the best player on the field in this game. It's no Brock Bowers. So trust me, we're not. Brock Bowers will be on the field. He will not be in uniform. Luther Burden, um, the guy that is number one on the, on the scouting report all over the place, which is just kind of crazy. And, this is going to shape up to be a potential SEC East title game of sorts. Um, think about this. Mizzou's going to be ranked in that first playoff poll, which I mentioned comes out on Halloween. They'll be ranked uh, potentially the highest they've ever been in the playoff poll. The highest that they've ever been ranked was 16th. Drink is going to get another extension before then, isn't he? He's going to be the governor of Missouri. Don't rule it out. His deal runs through 2027. He got the extension last year, got a raise last year. If you think Jimmy Sexton isn't trying to cash in on this, you're crazy. I'm telling you right now, what are the odds that Drink looks at the Georgia game? And instead of potentially waiting to see if his team goes nine and three or 10 and two or something like that, they get to the negotiating table. They get him closer to that $9 million club, which half the SEC is part of. Wait and see if Brent Venables, Steve Sarkeesian, if they are going to be part of that club next year when they join the conference. And they just say, you know what? We'll get you closer to that. We'll add another two years onto that deal. Buy out. We're going to beef it up even more for you. I have no inside info on that. But I think we need to brace for that possibility because this went from being a head-scratching contract 
that at this time, basically this time a year ago, was extended on the heels of the South Carolina win. And he definitely took advantage of that. His team took advantage of that. I'm not saying like drink is, is calling up Mizzou and saying, get me my extension right now. And that's, that's not how these conversations work. But before that Georgia game, if they're not negotiating that, that deal, I'd be surprised. And that's, that's kind of crazy, but that is, that is college football in a nutshell. Go seven and one. Get Mizzou off to your best, off to its best start in ten years. We're recruiting this. We're doing this with our offense. And who knows though? Like, okay, so as much as I say that, like tongue in cheek, maybe this is the best version of Drink, and maybe he can be a good SEC coach with Kirby Moore as his play caller, with Blake Baker running that defense. Maybe him in this more CEO type role is exactly what Mizzou needed. Now it doesn't mean that they're all of a sudden going to start winning nine games every year in this new expanded SEC. But if this is the best version of him, and if that's what Mizzou is signing up for, and it's understood, hey, you're not going to be your offensive play caller, you're always going to defer those duties, maybe that's not as crazy as what we would have initially thought if we had been told, hey, drink late October, that extension's coming. Just wait for it. Yeah. No, and I think like I think they extended him when they kind of didn't need to. So if they, you know, if he's actually performing above that, that, that feels almost like I hate to say obvious, but in this marketplace, yeah. And I think that, you know, we were calling for it for literal years. Like I literally said at the beginning of this, when you guys got to show me something, you know, predict something against K State. It's like I I was so we were so sick of just watching them be this middling team, and it's like we literally wanted them to get a play caller to effectively get the ball to Luther Burden to trust Brady Cook, let him cook right, and like they brought a trader like. Everything that we've wanted them to to do, they just kind of did. Not that we were like right or anything, but it's like we all kind of knew drink calling the plays wasn't going to work. They'd seen it. We've all seen the whole like Schrader. By the way, Schrader was not this this good last year. Yeah. Like he, he like he has made some some significant steps after last year. Is kind of like yeah, it's a little bit more of a split with Pete, and it, he mm-hmm. has d- turned himself into a really good player, and it's probably somebody that I need to be talking about more, and he will be part of that all SEC conversation. Yeah, hundred um, percent. But yeah, I think that's that's the thing is that everybody, all these pieces that we liked individually, all starting to play as a team. Crazy concept, and not just out there doing cardio like they were before with like Cook trying to lead the team in rushing. Which is like, hey, bless him, he was doing everything he could, but it wasn't enough. So yeah, I'm actually really fired up about Mizzou's future, especially with the NIL laws. They're gonna have one creature come come out of Mizzou every year or Missouri if they could just grab a couple of those guys out of the state of Missouri and St. Louis. It's like could be a fun team, man. Think about this. Four teams in the SEC with one or fewer losses heading into Halloween weekend. Mm-hmm. Zoo, Ole Miss, Bama, Georgia. Uh, dead wrong. Um, I'll say this. I regret having Mizzou and Ole Miss winning six games. Mizzou has already hit the over on my win projection for this entire season. So yep. feel pretty dumb about that one. Ole Miss won. Eh. The second half of the schedule is still difficult. They're going to win more than six games, though. Very, very yep. wrong on that. Shall we talk about Ole Miss on the road? Yes, oh, really quick. I will say South Carolina, one positive for you guys is Nick Harbour. God, that guy rules. Mm. When Bruce Feldman puts him at number one on his freaks list, that's saying something. Yep. He's, he's going to be fun to be able to, to watch in space. And the, even in a season that is totally lost like this and, and – TBD on the, the bowl conversation. I don't know that that climb is really uphill at this point. Yeah. Might take it's. I mean, it's going to take upsetting three loss Clemson, which 
who knows that that could be who among us couldn't yeah at this point but let's yeah yeah exactly your point it's like yeah this is more or less a lost season so let's get that kid out there because he's super fun to watch and like i think that you can just kind of go ahead and kiss this one goodbye this team just kind of doesn't have it this year enough guys have gotten hurt line's still not good but next year (laughs) that guy is gonna be something Dal Loggins is good. I still think Dal Loggins has been a good has been a good play caller. I do like, even though there have been moments of frustration, I still think there. And we'll get to the Arkansas offensive play calling and how bad that's been. But Dal Loggins, with kind of similar circumstances, an offensive line that everybody knows is overmatched, has handled that significantly better than Danny knows has at Arkansas. And that's not really up for. It is hard. I I can't imagine calling plays with a bad offensive line. An offensive line is that bad. And he continues to have to do that. Okay. Ole Miss, Auburn. Much like the Tiger Bowl last week, I was just ready for weird things to happen in this game. And Lane was. Lane was also ready for weird things to happen. He told Katie George in the halftime interview, like, yeah, you know, weird things happen. Jordan Hare, you just just never know. That place was rocking. I will continue to say that that is an elite college football venue, no matter how bad Auburn is, because mm-hmm. my God, like they were, and I tweeted this out. They were two and 13 in their last 15 SEC games after they beat Ole Miss in that game a couple years ago with Matt Corral a game in which he got hurt and they can't throw a forward pass. It's horrible to watch Auburn attempt offensive football at this point. They're not going anywhere. Maybe the Liberty bowl, And those fans were still ready to make that the toughest place to play on earth. And that's awesome. And my, my hat is off to you, Auburn fan, because I know you get a bad rap at times. People are like, Oh, Auburn fans are such unrealistic expectations all the time. What they do to make that place, what it is, is phenomenal. And it's what makes the sec great. And I will they tell just people want the team to win as bad as they want them to win. <laughs> they are like, yes, let's do this for us. The team's like, you know what? I don't know about that one. <laughs> they they have they have hope, they have juice that any given day, you just it is going to be a 60-minute battle. And you know what? I think they're they're right to feel that way. They are right to feel that way. So to me, it makes it all the more impressive that Ole Miss did what it did. And that was kind of weather that storm when it's tied, they're feeling confident. They're feeling like this is the one time that Hugh Freeze is going to catch somebody that he's not supposed to beat. And instead, Ole Miss didn't let those weird things happen. They, they really didn't. Auburn looked like it had a defense that was totally gassed because when you have, what was it, five first downs on offense in the first 52 minutes of an organized football game, your defense is probably going to be tired. I, I didn't check their Fitbits, their Apple Watches, their <laughs> their whoops, whatever they were using. I imagine those heart rates were pretty high. It felt like it. And having a, a fresh, healthy Quinshawn Judkins to take advantage of that, Jackson Dart running the way that he was, Ulysses Bentley, that, that was not fun. And Ole Miss recognized that. And they, that's why they were able to look good down the stretch. Judkins, in my opinion, looked like the best version of himself. been waiting to see him be this player. And I think the bye week really helped him kind of get right. I also think playing in his home state, he's got his mom in the house. They kept showing her love that. Um, That probably helped him a little bit too, a little bit of extra juice for Quinshawn Judkins. We're going to discuss the depression that is the Auburn offense in a second. And it is Mm -hmm. depressing, but I need to respect Pete Golding's defense here for just briefly. Okay. They, they have faced six FBS opponents this year. 
if we had said in the preseason, bold prediction, I think Pete Golding is going to take over that Ole Miss defense, and I think he's going to hold five of his six FBS offenses to 24 points or less. That would have been a bold prediction, and that is what he has done. And the one team that scored more than 24 points at the FBS level against Ole Miss, LSU. Yeah, Yeah, pretty good. It was yeah. They're getting twenty four points just rolling out of bed. So Lane can work with that. This is kind of what Lane hoped it would be, right? You're not going to be allowing seventeen points per game. I don't think the offense complements that to be able to do that consistently. And Lane knows that. But to to have a defense that can consistently get an offense off schedule with their ability to get into the backfield. I love Jared Ivy. That guy is just wrecking backfields. He's been fun to watch this year and they, they do those things. And yes, it's against Auburn. So take it for what it is. I, I thought the Auburn offensive line was pretty juiced up for this one, but still they, they just continue to, to find ways, even though they're not, they're, they're going to allow those chunk plays every once in a while. They're going to have those lapses. It's a little bit bend, but don't break sometimes, but, I just think that Pete Golding has had a a better year than a lot of people would have expected. And I think even my own very pedestrian projection of Ole Miss of six wins was partially because I had serious questions about that defense. I think they've kind of answered that so far. And I think that's kind of why they're at this place, still sitting there with one loss, still sitting there with SEC West chances. Yeah, 100%. I think that they – well, maybe not 100 for Pete Golding because 82%. I think, I think about 80 is fair. You nailed okay. it there. I think that we have some work to do. I, I do want to say, is your next topic the Auburn offense? Because, boy, do I have some stuff to say. Um, Yeah. Do we want to – real quick. One, one thing I, I, I should have brought this up in the pregame. Um, Ole Miss beating Auburn in consecutive years for the first time since the 1950s. Hmm. Should have had that in the pregame notes. 71 years. Long time. Yeah. Before Archie was there, that that is the last time that that happened. Um, they're they're just sort of hanging around, and, and like again, we're not talking about them in the division title race because everybody's looking at that Georgia game that's coming up and saying, oh, well, they're automatically going to have that loss number two. But it just gets gets interesting if LSU beats Bama. Just we'll say that it would still require Ole Miss going in Athens, beating Georgia. And if they're going to create running lanes, they will have a much better chance than I thought a few weeks ago. And they look like that offensive line is starting to figure some things out. Um, okay, let's talk about Auburn. Let's do it. Two and 14 in their last 16 SEC games. Not ideal. The offense is unwatchable. Unwatchable. Zero identity, and Hugh Freeze is partially to blame for it. Uh, significantly to blame. Yeah. Um, Jarquez Hunter had the long touchdown run early, 47-yard completion late when it was like 4th and 15. I think that was like a bobbled pass, too, when he was coming across the field. Those two plays were 100 of Auburn's 275 total yards of offense. Hmm. This QB situation, Auburn fans, you have every right to be frustrated. This sucks to watch because Robbie Ashford comes out as the starter. Talked about all that. That pre that pregame conversation about how he's going to get more run in this one, mm-hmm. he he gets to start, which is great. Does he get consecutive series in the first half? No. Why? What? He basically goes split with Peyton Thorne in the first half, and all of this excitement about like, oh, Robbie Ashford, he's he's out there, he's starting. 
No. And then as soon as they're trailing, I go, well, we got to be able to throw the football. So Peyton Thorne's going to come in. I don't know. Does he? Does he? No! He doesn't. No! Your whole thing for Peyton Thorne, I'm not saying you were wrong, but I'm saying they're doing it wrong. Do you know how many receivers caught a football in this game for Auburn? The receivers, the wide receivers. catches by receivers? Three. There's three. Three. Yes. Okay, we're on the exact same page because I'm sitting here and I'm looking at the numbers. You see me like clicking it. I'm like, they're throwing the ball. They're kind of. (laughs) And there are 12 receptions. And I'm like, Rivaldo Fairweather, that's not a receiver. Shark that's not a receiver. He's not a receiver. He's a good tight end. He's not Three a catches for 28 yards was what the Auburn receivers had in this game. We are on the exact same page. I love this. I'm sitting here. I'm going, hold on. I know Jorquez Hunter. I know Revolver Fair. I'm familiar with y'all's game. Y'all are great in your roles. You guys are not receivers. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, if y'all go not throw the ball to wide receivers, I'm surprised I got my voice this morning. I was sitting there screaming at Hugh Freeze. This game was so winnable for Auburn. And they just decided to be like, you know what? We just come around two quarterback, two, uh, uh, what's it called? Platoon. We're just going to go ahead and be super predictable. We're going to run Robbie Ashford in obvious situations. We're going to throw the ball in obvious situations. The, the Subbing out a quarterback within the context of one series because it's third and like kind of long and you need to throw the ball is the most telegraphed like 2009 LSU nonsense I've seen. I can't believe you start a series with Robbie Ashford. You give him two plays and then you bring Peyton Thornton in the same series. I hate it. I hate it. It's cute for a little bit. It's not working. It's not working. You're still searching for that offensive identity, but you're doing really similar things. How how are you expecting any different result at this point of the year? I that that to me is what what I don't really get. Like Robbie Ashford needs throwing opportunities. He's not going to get better as a passer. And I understand you're seeing things that we don't in practice. You're privy to that. We're not. Okay. I'll I'll take your word for it. He's Missing throws against air, whatever. He needs those opportunities because Peyton Thorne looking down at his feet because he gets pressure in his face and then taking a sack is not a passing offense. He's like a dude that can't dribble. He's like, look at that at his feet. Like, what do I do? It's so bad. It it is so, so bad to watch. Worst prediction I had in the preseason was saying that Auburn would have a top 40 passing offense. But that that hasn't happened since 1997. I regret that. <laughs> I just say, I regret that so I drafted so this much. clown in my OC draft. What the think about what I'm thinking right now? Yeah, the Phil, the, the Phil Montgomery-Hugh Freeze relationship. I, I don't think – I'd be surprised if Hugh Freeze said at season's end, Phil Montgomery, you're going to bring in somebody else. As bad as it's been, and I'm acknowledging that, I still would be surprised just because I think it's all about the future, the future, the future. There are other things that they can do – to set themselves up better from a micro perspective, but they continue to think macro and I hate it. I hate it. I just hate it. Free set. This is the first time in SEC history. I think I'm looking at a, a team and going, you know, I actually think their head coach should be calling. <laughs> Let's take that big call and put him in the box. Hugh Freeze couldn't do worse than this. I've seen it. <laughs> well, he took it back in the, in the Georgia game. Now we don't know. We don't know how much it, it Sometimes I think coaches say, oh, I'm, I'm doing play calling duties. Oh, I'm not because it's mm-hmm. just all about responsibility. Games of shit. Yeah. yeah. Like we don't necessarily know. We're not, we're not necessarily um, in the radio, very popular topic of conversation in college football of being able to listen in and hear what's being communicated, what's not being communicated. But at the same time, I'm, if your plan to get this passing game going 
is Holden Gurner developing? They had a little double pass to him that went nowhere. It was he was taken down behind the line of scrimmage. It was bad. If that's your plan, is hoping that he continues to develop and you are going to give your receivers a better chance later in the season once he figures things out, once he gets more comfortable in the offense. I don't like that plan either. I'd still rather see Robbie Ashford. Let Robbie Ashford throw the ball 15 times in a football game. It can't be worse than what we're seeing from Peyton Thorne. It just can't. There's no way. It's, oh man, Auburn. Think about life as an Auburn receiver right now. Show up, block, get told how bad your group is, have zero chemistry with your quarterback because it's being changed out all the time. Robbie Ashford, Peyton Thorne do not throw a football the same way. And you're like, wait a minute. I just finished that entire game. Our entire group, we're going to go into that film study and we're going to have three catches for 28 freaking yards. Then boom, imagine you're Coy Moore. You transferred off LSU because they couldn't throw the ball. Now they got Jaden Daniels, five receivers back than you. You got one catch. Caleb Burton coming from Ohio State. He's like, wait a minute. I could have stayed with Brian Hartline. I've made, what does Job say in Arrested Development? I've made a great mistake. I've made a great mistake. It's just weird that he's treating this like it's his only option. I want to see Robbie start a full game. I, I want to see them draw up real passing concepts for him. If he's not comfortable throwing certain routes, don't throw those certain routes. He's more comfortable throwing the deep ball. Try and get him on the option, on the outside, rolling to his right. That seems to be where he's at his best. But for whatever reason, it just hasn't been in the cards. Think about this, though. We say all those things. The passing offense is stuck in 1923. Bowl berth is still on the table, Will. <laughs> Their upcoming schedule. Anymore. They should opt out of a bowl. No. Uh-uh. Like when Ben Simmons' team didn't go to the NIT, they should be like, you know what, respectfully, we're going to go work on ourselves. We're going to yeah. go to therapy. <laughs> we're going to go to training. We don't need to play anymore football. <laughs> they have home against Mississippi State, who, speaking of passing <laughs> offenses, stuck in the mud. i watch that now. <laughs> at Vandy. At Arkansas, who just lost the game that we're going to be talking about in a second here. Uh, seven to three and then home New Mexico state before the iron bowl. It's bad, but Auburn even because Auburn's defense is still looking the part in my opinion. They're That's still what I was the about part. to say. Like when you started talking about them, it's like I, they showed so much fight until they were just tired. It's like, I can't even say that they have a bad defense kind of, and they didn't show up against LSU different situation, but it's like, that's why I thought that would be a back and forth game because you see these dudes and you see how hard they're playing and you see like they're, they're just juiced until they can't be anymore. It's like squeezing a lemon until there's nothing left. It's like, I actually love their defense. They're just kind of cooked out there, but I think you're right. They'll probably comfortably make a bowl game as I'm looking at the schedule. You should be bowl eligible before the iron bowl. If you're, if you're Auburn, like there's no way they should be less than three and one in that stretch. Home Mississippi mm-hmm. state at Vandy at Arkansas home, New Mexico state three and one. You can still lose one of those games. You could lose a seven to three game to Mississippi state. Maybe that's just what Zach Arnett's going to do all the time. Should we talk about that? Do we have to talk about that? We have to talk about that. Okay. This game was so bad that I wanted to retroactively name week eight. Pumpkin Patch Saturday. Mm-hmm. I Let's talk about this and the Ohio State game going on at the same time. <laughs> I thought to myself, I thought this was 2023. Mm-hmm. I, I thought offense was easier. I, I thought passing and throwing the football and completing passes was something that we, we just see all the time and everybody should be able to do it. And then flipping 
between these two games or if you had them on both screens, whatever you were doing, you're like, man, um, if you're playing a drinking game for every touchdown, you're, that's, that's a pretty mild Saturday afternoon. It just was. But mm-hmm. Pumpkin Patch Saturday felt appropriate for a game like this that was maddening in so many different phases. And I realize there are a lot of people that love great defensive football that are saying, man, if you can't appreciate a 7-3 and three game, get out of here. Okay? That was, that was the fewest points by an SEC team to win a conference game since 3-2. to two. Yeah, of course. Had to be a Mississippi State game, right? That was had to be inevitable. You talk about bad optics, Will. If you didn't watch this game, and maybe it was Pumpkin Patch Saturday for you, I commend you. You made a correct choice. Here's what you need to know. Arkansas failed to convert on fourth down. So Mississippi State took over up 7-3 to three on the Arkansas 20 with 2.07 to play. Arkansas would, in theory, have plenty of time to try and tie the game if Mississippi State just settled for a field goal, if they got a defensive stop, settled for a field goal. Probably still going to have like a minute and a half, something like that, whatever. Arkansas fans are just filing out of the stadium after they Mm -hmm. did not convert this fourth down. And I don't blame them one bit. It was so bad. Mississippi State missed the field goal. (laughs) They missed the field goal. So you had a potential game-winning drive attempt for Arkansas. They, they went for a Hail Mary. It would have been the weirdest home crowd celebration ever for a walk-off Hail Mary if it had happened. But Arkansas fans are like, no. You only get so many minutes in this life. Why do I want to spend another 10 minutes in this building watching this Arkansas offense? Why? There's no reason to. They're not coming back and winning this game. I don't care if it's tied. They're probably going to lose it in overtime. They can't score points. But get out of here. They... Credit Mike Wright. Credit Zach Arnett's defense. They were great. Bookie Watson, that guy's everywhere. He's awesome. More people need to be talking about him. On a day in which Mississippi State doesn't have Will Rogers, Woody Marks is out there with a freaking rod taped to the back of his leg or something like that to stabilize his hamstring. Like, that that was a peak Arnett win in a lot of different ways. And a lot of people poked fun saying, like, that's the way that he's going to be able to win games. It's, he wants to win 14 to 10, 7 to 3, I guess. And Credit to Mississippi State because you went on the road, you get on the board in SEC play when you were very, very much not at full strength. No style points. They made life difficult on KJ Jefferson. But, oh, my God, Will, that Arkansas offensive line made it look like Mississippi State was cheating every time they did a twist, a stunt, or a blitz. I don't I, – I don't, they weren't mic'd up. I imagine the Arkansas offensive line, every time one of those instances happened, they said, nope, that's illegal. Flag him. They're just like throwing their hands up like a, a receiver trying to get a DPI call. It's like when you're playing like all-time QB or whatever it recess and somebody like sacks the QB. And yes. It's like, we, we said we were going to do that, dude. Come on. We said 5-1,000 rush and you counted way too fast. Can't yep. do that. That was the Arkansas offensive line. It was oh, painful. The only scoring drive of the game for Arkansas – was because Mike Wright threw a pick on his first pass of the game and Arkansas got a field goal out of it. That was it. That was it. Almost had Think that about how this game started, too. Because it was like, okay, boom, no Will Rogers. Boom, pick off. Oh, Arkansas going to cook today. No more points. That's it. Haven't been home in five weeks and you come home and you deliver that. You didn't get. Talk about how frustrating it was to have that schedule. And it was frustrating to have that schedule. Sam Pittman talked about, yeah, it's a bummer when you can't have recruits 
hosted in a very pivotal time of the year and you have that long of a break in between home games, but then you come home and you give them that. Oh my mm-hmm. God. Oh, so, so bad. They almost had the scoop and score on the, the botch Mississippi state snap, but kind of seemed like the theme of the day. Arkansas just can't have anything go its way. Mississippi state was bailed out by its own receiver, not being set. And so it was a false start and they were whistling it dead. And so they couldn't even get that going for him. That would have been with seven minutes left in the fourth quarter. That would have been like the play of the game. The only play of the game that was really significant, but man, the Arkansas fan in sunglasses, just holding the thumbs down. That was an image, an image for, for the day that was in Fayetteville. Wait, I'll say this real quick. Cause the quote, the quote from Pittman in order to keep your girlfriend and you don't see her for five weeks, and she's had a chance to see this guy and this guy and this guy. She's going to leave you unless you're Elvis. I just want to say he was like Homer Simpson playing Elvis. <laughs> like, I'm sure they have recruits in the building and everything. It's like, I don't know if, I don't know if this is what we want to be a part of out here. Yeah. Shots fired at every other human man in existence who isn't Elvis. But, yeah, the, the point stands. And I think there's something to be said for it. But at the it's same an unfair time, schedule. He's right about that. But also, you got to like, if you want to make that quote, you got to come out and win by 30 and be like, look, see, unfair. Can you imagine being a recruit and showing up, being told, man, once we can get you on campus, I can't wait. I can't wait to, to have you see this atmosphere and to see how dejected that place was by day's yeah. end. Oh, man. Dan Enos is a goner. He's going to be one and done. There's no world in which he's back next year. And honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if that is decided and understood before the regular season finale, or maybe if it's not, they'll do so on that Saturday because it's kind of like, Oh, you have black Friday against Mizzou, which I'm pretty sure that game is still black Friday this year. Um, And then Saturday right after you just make that firing and it's kind of, you know, bury the lead, but obviously there's going to be other questions. Of course we could, we can bash Danielos until the cows come home. We can't obviously like it's so, so unbelievably maddening that there are the lack of KJ design runs, the inability to scheme receivers open in space, the lack of scheming in the ground game. And it's, I don't think it's even fair to say it's a hundred percent on the offensive line. The scheme just has not done him any favors. It has not worked out hand up dead wrong, bad, bad timing awful they couldn't even get a kj tush push for a first down on fourth and one how is man, that possible watch your kj play football is so rough man the, the 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 fumble where he just got like rocked and then he had that one bad pin oh. it's just like what did you see there and it's like like i said it's like we're watching a guy's like i mean he's got to come back to college next year i think there's just no shot an nfl team takes a shot on him after this because it, they just they make him look goofy. They make him look like he doesn't know what he's doing. We've seen even like in the in the LSU game, he looked like a great quarterback. And it's like, why are you hanging this dude out there to dry like that, man? Captain of the dudes who deserve better team, KJ Jefferson. Mm-hmm. He is there. God, he looked good in the pregame too. He's rocking that suit, man. Come out, not have a touchdown. So bad. Question really isn't about Enos. It's not. It's about Sam Pittman. And I want to beat a dead horse too much with this. We've talked about the optics. Those optics on Saturday were really bad for the future of Sam Pittman. It's not just that you couldn't score. It's Arkansas now has nine losses by seven points or fewer the last two seasons. And that's tied for the most in FBS. To be two and six at this point of the season, one more loss eliminates you from bowl eligibility. 
That's tough. That is really, really tough. Arkansas going that long without being home and then having the home fans who, in my opinion, looked ready to go. It it wasn't like that place was sleepy for an 11 o'clock local time start or anything like that. I won't put it on those fans. Arkansas just has no life whatsoever on the offensive side of the ball. And any hope that it was going to carry over from the way that they responded down the stretch against Alabama and that it was going to carry into what they were going to do against Mississippi State, that was gone. It just did not happen at all. A lot of that falls in Sam Pittman. It really does. It's so bad that um, Andrew Doty of of BetMGM, he he sent me a message. He's like, way too early candidates. Arkansas, let's go. I thought about it. The list for me, a very preliminary list, if we're having to put this together and again, I'm as big of a Sam Pittman human fan as there is, but I understand the decision that has to be made and what can go very, very south still, even in the midst of a two and six start. Your candidates, Mike Elko, obviously, he's going to be on everybody's candidate list. Everybody in power five, that has got an opening Michigan state included as well. Ryan Grubb, offensive coordinator for Washington, the guy that Bama couldn't get, a guy that's going to be a very, very hot name this offseason, even though, woof, I stayed up and watched that one against Arizona State because I'm like, hey, I'm going to be talking about Michael Penix as a Heisman com- in the Heisman conversation. Want to see this team at its best. Want to see this team at its worst. I saw that team at its worst. It was really, really ugly for the majority of that second half. They are able to find a way to win. Ryan Grubb will stay be- for the Jaden Daniels Heisman campaign. <laughs> kind of was. <laughs> Kind of was. Caleb, Caleb Williams, Williams just imploding down the stretch. Yeah, I think it was Mike Rodak had this. Uh, Caleb Williams and Jalen Milrow now have the same Heisman Trophy odds. So yeah, I saw that. Yeah, that's morning. pretty crazy. Um, another candidate would be Glenn Schumann. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Arkansas is going to go back to the well with hiring another Georgia assistant, but Glenn Schumann is someone that is going to be very coveted, and he will have a Power 5 job very, very soon. And then the other that I put in every single conversation because I think this guy would be a great college head coach, even if it's not his number one thing. But I still think he would be – I still think that there are people that are going to pursue him, the hiring firms, all those people. Brian Johnson, the Eagles offensive coordinator, who was Dan Mullen's right-hand man for a very, very long time, Um, somebody that's very, very respected. Obviously, the Eagles having on and off the best offensive start, but I still think that he is a guy that will be – his name will be circled around the college ranks. I'm probably forgetting a lot of people, but that was just a very preliminary list. If you are an Arkansas fan at this point, that's more exciting than talking about this team play football. Yeah. That's reality. Yeah. I'm right there with you. It's like, it's, 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 you know, Sam Pittman hopefully has built up an amount of goodwill. Um, there's just something, you know, and, and I, I'm not blaming Hunter Yurchik necessarily, but there is kind of something to hiring the same guy twice and both of them being bad ideas in terms of Enos. Like it's like y'all y'all had this guy earlier, you didn't like him, and now you've got him back and you hate him. Uh, who could have foreseen this? Uh, that was a guy that uh, Michael Wayne Bratton talked me into back in the day, and I should just never bought the stock. I don't even know what that was. I bought it. Like Allen, yeah, like it. those when they had like Allen and stuff at Arkansas. I thought he, I thought he was good. It's, it's a disaster, but yeah, it's like. That's as we talked about it in the preseason. We talked about it during the year. It's like it's just kind of the issue when you have a head coach that's not really well. He does have a specialty. It's offensive line, <laughs> so it's like you don't really have a head coach that has like a you know offensive defensive coordinator background, kind of like the situation that Coach O was in. So yeah, it's, I I hope that he can stay there. I hope he can survive this. But you know, it all comes down to really 
like you said, PR, messaging, recruiting, all that stuff. If they can pull it together down the stretch, you know, but they need to win games down the stretch. Like moral victories are over with. Like there's no, they almost beat Alabama. They almost beat LSU. Like they've done that. That's not going to help him. He needs to go out and win football games and hopefully creep towards, you know, bowl and have some hopium to build. Cause like you said, I mean, for a crew showing up in this, in that environment, it's like, what are you selling to these kids? But you won't, hopefully you won't be playing for Danny Nose. So that's, that's what we can sell you. True. It's a nice sell. We're going to have a new offensive coordinator no matter what. I think we play the results with that though a little bit too much. And think about how many, how many head coaches are play callers at this point, and yeah. how that's such a coveted thing. And you can be three years in and then realize, oh, actually, we don't want you calling plays anymore, and we want you in a more CEO type role. And I'm not saying it's bad to have someone who has great experience as an offensive coordinator because what they can bring to the table from a schematic standpoint, from a CEO standpoint, they can install their scheme and then hire somebody that can run their scheme. Like that, there is still a lot of value in that. So I'm not saying that that's should be totally dim diminished, but I do think with the non-coordinators, with Annette Ogeron, obviously, and he had other circumstances that led to his demise, obviously, but with Pittman as well, it's almost a little bit of a default of, well, he wasn't an offensive coordinator, and this is why you can't hire a guy in that spot. It's like, well, you also rebuilt a program that was was at the total bottom of the barrel in Power Five, and that even if Sam Pittman, even if Sam Pittman gets fired tomorrow, would still be part of his legacy. And Arkansas fans, I think, I hope, could still be appreciative because you're still at a better place than you were at Chad Morris. And I know that oh, Chad Morris is trending on Saturday, and it's the worst losing streak of the post Chad Morris era. And I get all of that different losing a game that's down to the wire against Mississippi state than getting waxed by Western Kentucky by the quarterback that you said wasn't good enough to play in your scheme. Okay. Yeah. Sam Pittman well, wins SEC saying. games. Chad Morris doesn't even show up to them. Okay. Like, right. And I realize yeah. that's a tough thing to say in the midst of a, a winless SEC season so far, but give me Sam Pittman over Chad Morris all day. Yeah. And no, no, all I'm saying there is that you have, you know, when you have a coach for that type of background, you have like a culture, right? And so if Sam Pittman's culture was, we have the best offensive line, or let's say third behind Bama and Georgia, as it should be like, we can build around that. It's just that it's, you know, when you, when you switch your offensive and defensive coordinators and it just completely changes the identity of your football team like that, like at the end of the day, you can look through like the saving stuff. And it's like, he saw Pete Golding and he was like, that's not what we want here. Like I can like joyless murder ball is Nick Saban. You know what I'm saying? At the end of the day, and he's found a way to get back to that. He has his culture. Kirby smart. So same deal. He is hard hitting. Like the DBs are going to play great. Like it's even though Georgia's offense has been a lot of what we talked about, their defense has been kind of that steadying buoy. And, you know, we've seen Lane Kiffin, great example, you know, not exactly a play caller, but a guy that, you know, you know what his team's going to look like. Well, Sam Pittman's like, yeah, like we don't, we don't have something to kind of hang our hat on and say, okay, well, at least you can give us this is all you I'm did. saying. And like I said, yeah, up until this up, year, you did. I, th I thought yeah. like that was, that was there. And, and Kendall Bryles, like the offense that he ran it's, and, and I realized like we were saying like, Hey, they should still be able to work in a post Kendall Bryles world, but I'd argue they had that identity and, and you, you, you don't necessarily get to keep that identity in perpetuity. It doesn't mean that Kendall Bryles, if he had stayed there with this team would have been as entrenched into that identity as they've been in the past. But I would argue that for the first three years of the Sam Pittman era, that was never really a question. We kind of knew what 100%. Arkansas was going to be. 
Hundred percent, and that's why this is so weird. That's what I'm saying because it's like this just does not look like that Arkansas team. So like as an AD, it's like, well, if we got to remake this Arkansas team again anyway, it's like so. Yeah, I think that I think that they should give him a chance. I think they should give him at least one more year. But then it goes into recruiting. So I think it's about how he finishes honestly with recruiting because if you have a class that's just like completely destitute and then no one's buying in, but that's something that Sam Pittman has always been great at. So it's like like I said, offensive line recruiting. Those are Sam Pittman's like things. That we, we saw him at IMG. If you can get the guys to believe, you can get everybody in the boat because they look, it's us against the world. Like, you know, just like actual underdog mentality. Like Kirby wishes he has this moment to be like, look, everyone thinks you guys are going to lose. If you could pull something off like that and win the games and, and get it turned around, nobody could do that like him in terms of getting guys. I mean, his guys are still playing hard. It's just not working. You know, it's crazy. And I was, I just thought of this as you were bringing this up. We're talking about job security and stuff. Remember last year, all these early firings were happening across power five. We're not seeing that this year. We're really not seeing that at all. I probably just jinxed it by saying that. And this is going to be a Sunday in which watch four coaches get fired or something, something crazy. But we were talking about how that that's the new trend. If Arkansas is dead set on moving on from Sam Pittman, I wonder how that plays out. And if it's because obviously I've talked about the, um, the performance-based buyout and being under 500. He's now two games under 500 overall for his time at Arkansas. Um, if he is at or above 500, that's obviously when that buyout would be about 5 million bucks different. But I, I think that there would be um, a, an interesting conversation to be had of like, what's to gain if they, if they want to make that move now or do they wait until the end of the year? Do they give him a chance to turn it around? I think they will wait and give him a chance to turn it around. But if it's like four and eight, and it's ugly and they're getting waxed. Yeah, the optics will not be on his side. Not to like do a whole thing on this, but the only coaches I can think of that got fired like that are Tucker and Fitzgerald. And they had obviously nothing related to the field going on. So yeah. it's like, yeah, I don't think there's like performance based firings that really happened this year. Two coaches that were fired with cause. Yeah. Yeah. And Which is no buyout. So it's like, it's, you could fire, fire that guy whenever. Yeah, exactly. Okay, let's end with a little ya or nah. We'll talk national with some of these questions. Yeah or not, Will, Alex Grinch deserves another extension to be Lincoln Riley's defensive coordinator. I hope so, man. I hope that guy gets several ranches to stay right where he's at. Can you imagine? Can you imagine still running it back with that defense? I watched Bear Alexander get that targeting penalty on that that last – I think it was the – was it the last drive or maybe it was like right before – oh, yeah. And Bryce and Barnes. Yeah, it was the last drive. And you're just like, what are you doing? I mean, he makes some big-time plays, but – He's a bit of a lightning rod, the former Georgia transfer, that defense man, to allow that play I to Bryce this at Barnes. The time, bro. How many defensive tackles have you seen get called for targeting? LSU in that Florida State game last year. That was um, um, no Allie was defensive end. Allie was that was Edra. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're right. Mm-hmm. Dang. Um man, it's not very often. Uh Albert Hainsworth fact- probably had a couple back in the day. <laughs> That was pre-targeting. That was probably, but yeah, like, so, so point being, it's like, not only was that the first DT I remember seeing getting targeting, but it was also the clearest instance of targeting I've ever seen. Cause he like grabs the unit, like headbutts him. It was face mask to face mask targeting. What a dirty play. Anyway. Doing it to a pig farmer too. Bryson Barnes just balling. Disrespectful. Yeah. I, I regret not making Utah my lock of the week, even though lock of the week hit. That was an oversight by me. I don't know why. I, I I was just so locked in on James Franklin not winning a big-time game. I should have made it double. I, I really should have. I should have just said, you know what? No, yeah. You, I don't care. They, they, can, they can bring back Alex Smith on one leg, and Utah is going to find a way to still beat USC. Okay? It's just going to happen. Set your watch to it. Um, okay, yeah or not. The ACC will be the conference that gets left out of the final 14 playoff. 
Man, FSU's, they're finding a way. They're scrapping and fighting. Like uh, Coach Leach said about the Coug. They're, they'll find a way. So I don't know. It feels like every every uh, every week they're in some kind of a dogfight, but they're not losing. So, I mean, we'll see. They kind of have most of their hard games behind them. Uh, well, yeah, I think, I, think they, I think they make it. Yeah, down double digits to, to Duke. Shout out Mike Elko. Man, seeing Riley Leonard when he was told he, he wasn't going to be playing the rest of that game, how dejected he looked on the sideline. Tough to watch. Tough to watch because he understood the magnitude of that game. And but he's not at 100 percent He's clearly not. Um, yeah, they, they just continue to to be able to to find a way. This was probably a little bit more in reference to a certain team in Chapel Hill that I might have said some really nice things about that's got a defensive coordinator that I respect the hell out of. Um who had a rough day. Who had a rough day. And sometimes it happens in Gene Chizik's defense. Look, it's not the 85 Bears. Sometimes it has a bad day. And sometimes you lose a game to Virginia that you're supposed to win by three touchdowns. It happens to the best of us. Okay? It just mm-hmm. does. But, yeah, only one unbeaten team left in the ACC. I think they're going to be the conference that gets left out. That's that's my guess at this point. And I think the other Listen, four will get in. It's hard to stop Tony Musket at the end of the day. So sometimes Go ask Tennessee. Be- Tennessee actually did really well against them. Really well against okay, them. Well, you know, I was trying to be nice. Yeah. yeah. All right, last one for you. We'll stick with the ACC. My best chaos scenario from the preseason will actually come true, and Dabo Sweeney will leave for the NFL. Oh, man. I love this. Like, the fact that you were like, someone's going to randomly retire or whatever, I could see him doing that. I think the NFL, the, the only things he's good at in college are, like, just kind of treating kids like uh, the help. So, like, I don't think that's going to work in NFL circles. But, like, I don't know. Maybe he, like, leaves and just hangs out and waits for another job. I NFL feels very like he seems like a guy who like talks poorly about NFL players. Seems like he's like a guy. Those guys are overpaid. They're divas. Like I feel like that just doesn't fit his DNA. But I, he, he looks miserable out there. Man. I, if not leave for the NFL, it is step down, think about it, reconsider. I guess we're I'm moving the goalposts a little bit. He doesn't look happy. I'm I'm, I'm mm-hmm. happy for him though that the bandwagon gets a little bit lighter. You don't have to worry about that as much. You know, you lose some games, and, and this this is a positive. This this is good for Clemson to be able to lose games, get those fair weather fans out of here that are helping pay your salary and you know making you a national program and everything. Let's go back to being little old Clemson, Clemsoning, which I would argue they kind of did in that game against Miami. I guess we're past that though. Um, yeah, when Dabo says that, and then they lose a game like that to Miami, a Miami team that was kind of in free fall. It's the, so well. the meme with the superhero and the two buttons, and it's like spontaneously retire, use the transfer portal, and it's just Dabo like patting his head, like which one do I do? Because he's there where it's like the legitimate questions are going to start being asked, like brother, when are you hitting that transfer portal? Like clearly this team is not it. This team is not it. Yeah, uh, that will South Carolina be favored in that matchup? Regular <laughs> season finale. The game's going to be played in Columbia. I mean. They could be. They could very well be favored in that game, and I don't think it would be that crazy with how bad this Clemson offense looks at times. It's so unbelievably hard to watch. That was kind of the theme of the day. Offenses that were hard to watch that made us rethink what we were doing on this week eight, but still. Can't can't relate. Yeah, you you cannot. (laughs) You most definitely cannot relate, Um, but you don't get to watch your offense next week. That's kind of a bummer. Just watch highlights. Just watch, uh, go back and watch, uh, watch, just watch the fourth quarter of Mizzou. Just do that. Yeah. Good way to spend your time. 
If you have not, leave us a five-star review. Subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can watch every episode of the Saturday Night South podcast, which is presented by Texas Pete. Follow us on the app, formerly known as Twitter, at the SES Pod, at Sat Down South, at CGO Guerra, at Go So Hard. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.